0: This is HSBC Global Viewpoint, your window into the thinking, trends and issues shaping global banking and markets. Join us as we hear from industry leaders and HSBC experts on the latest insights and opportunities for your business. Thank you for listening.
1: Hello and welcome to The Macro Viewpoint by HSBC Global Research, our weekly podcast featuring the views of leading HSBC analysts on the outlook
2: for the global economy and markets. I'm Piers Butler and I'm joined by Chris brown Hi Piers, coming up in this week's programme, the ECB has just held its latest meeting. We get the key takeaways from Fabio Balboni, senior European economist.
1: We look at how China is aiming
2: to improve its scientific research capabilities, with Erin Chin, Greater China Economist. And Steve McGarry, Global Head of Healthcare Research, looks at some worrying new data about how antibody protection can wane with certain COVID-19 vaccines over time. This podcast was recorded on Thursday, the 22nd of July, 2021. Our full disclosures
1: and disclaimers can be found in the link attached to this podcast.
2: We begin this week in Europe, where the ECB has just held its latest policy meeting. Fabio Balberni, Senior European Economist, is here to give us the details. So, Fabio, the ECB recently announced a new inflation target, uh, and hence today it changed its forward guidance in the light of that. Uh, What did we
3: learn? Yes, Chris, indeed. So the forward guidance was changed uh, today, and there are three main elements of it. So the ECB is now saying they will not uh, increase rates, so they will keep rates at current or lower level until when inflation has uh, hit uh, the new 2% target, so of course the inflation target was revised uh, up from below but close to 2% to 2%, so that was factored in the new forward guidance, and that inflation target has to be met uh, uh, well ahead uh, into the forecast horizon, and uh, Christine Lagarde said during the meeting that that well ahead means by the midpoint of of the uh, inflation horizon. So for example, uh, currently the inflation horizon goes until the end of 2023 so that would be at some point uh, uh, next year, in the second half of next year, and that inflation has to be sustainably at those levels after that, and then in any case there will have to be a judgment by the governing council that uh, sufficient progress has been made towards achieving that target. So quite a a strengthening of forward guidance related to what we had before, which was only a commitment to keep rates at current or lower level until when inflation had sustainably met the target.
2: So does this tell us any more about the time when the ECB might start raising
3: rates? Well, look, our expectation has been that it would have taken a long time for the ECB to increase rates. We said we didn't expect any increase uh, of rates until uh, 2023. And the market was instead pricing in the first rate hike uh, by 2023, already 10 basis points. So we think that should definitely push market expectation for the first rate increase uh, towards uh, our view. And uh, as I said before, the midpoint of the inflation forecast at the moment is uh, around the second half of 2022, but by the time we get to December, then the ECB will introduce uh, 2024, uh, and that will move the midpoint of the inflation forecast uh, uh, around uh, mid-2023. And for example, at the moment, the ECB is only forecasting inflation at 1.4% then. So you can see that we're still significantly far off uh, the 2% the ECB is aiming to achieve and in a sustainable manner.
2: And what about the uh, asset purchases aspect, because at the moment we're currently expecting an announcement on tapering to come as early as this September.
3: Yes, indeed. Um, Today, asset purchases were not discussed. Christine Lagarde made that point clearly. We weren't expecting an explicit discussion. The ECB had said they would reassess uh, asset purchases under the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme, or PEP, every three months. So they did that in June, uh, and uh, Christine Lagarde said that there would be a reassessment in uh, September. Our expectation is that they would taper asset purchases in September, uh, but there is a a big uncertainty. It is possible that the ECB, if if they want to show a bigger commitment uh, towards achieving the new inflation target, they might decide not to taper purchases. Uh, They could also decide to extend the program, particularly if you are uh, in a new wave of uh, the pandemic. But in general, Christine Lagarde has made the point and reinforced it today that the ECB response will be forceful and persistent. So that remains in line with our view that no matter what happens to PEP, we will see asset purchases continue for a long period of time. And we should see also the asset purchases under the normal QE programs be stepped up in the future.
2: That's great, Fabio. Thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Thank you very much.
2: This week, our Asia economics team kicked off a series of reports on China's innovation through to 2025. The first report looks at how the country is improving its scientific research capabilities. Erin Shin is our Greater China Economist, and she joins us now. So Erin, China's obviously made a lot of progress in terms of scientific research in recent years. What are the areas where you feel it's uh, you know, doing particularly well?
4: So China's made a lot of progress in terms of its R&D. And in terms of its investment, it's actually the second largest globally. It accounts for over 20% of the global spending in R&D. Um, currently. And also combined with its strong talent uh, development, we've seen that China's been able to top the rankings in terms of innovation. So in the global innovation index, China is now the only emerging market among the top 20. And since 2019, China has also topped world rankings for the patent applications. Now, we also did a deep dive into where China has some strengths, and we found that looking at the academic rankings among the top 100 universities, China has made a lot of progress in the engineering fields. So China actually has the leading global share uh, among over half of the engineering fields that we looked at. So this is 12 out of 22 of them. So
2: you say it's doing well on the engineering field side, but there are other areas that you've identified where it's not doing quite so well.
4: Yeah, that's correct. So also looking at the academic rankings, we see that um, among the other sciences, such as natural sciences, life sciences, and medical sciences, China's still falling pretty far behind. So it only accounts for about 10% or less generally in these fields, Um, and this is pretty far behind. Europe and the US, which can account for anywhere from 30% to 50% in each field, depending on the field.
2: And if China is to make further progress, what do you feel the next steps are?
4: So we think that China is going to take a two pronged approach. The first one is domestically, we do think that they want to double down on basic research. And in the 14th five year plan, they've set a target to increase the share from the current level of 6% to over 8% of total R&D spending into basic research. So we think that they're going to increase the funding for building uh, national laboratories, as well as talent development programs, as well as giving some more uh, tax incentives to increase basic research funding. Now, the other approach that we see is they're going to increase international collaboration because it makes more sense that China can close the knowledge gap by um, learning from others as opposed to reinventing the wheel. So we see China deepening its international collaboration by closing trade and investment deals, um, as well as implementing more opening and reform to help level the playing field, increasing intellectual property rights enforcement to increase investment and R&D spending in China. Now we also see China looking to become more attractive for foreign talent, And this can be done by providing personal tax exemptions to be more competitive globally, as well as providing more social services uh, for foreign talent, such as uh, housing, subsidies, competitive wages, education for their children as well.
2: Erin, thank you very much indeed for that
4: summary. Thank you, Chris. Now we
1: finish off with a look at some new data that's been published regarding the antibody protection levels. Of some of the COVID-19 vaccines. Stephen McGarry, Global Head of Healthcare Research, is here to explain. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So uh, you've just published a report highlighting that there is a new paper in the medical journal The Lancet which has some important data on COVID-19 antibodies that we're getting from vaccination. Can you tell us a bit more about that and also
0: just remind the listeners as to the significance of a paper appearing in The Lancet? Sure thing, Um, The Lancet is one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world. Papers only appear there if they've been rigorously peer reviewed. Um, So when papers come out there, basically the medical and scientific community take notice. Um, The data, the new data, we looked at um, protective antibodies against, that have been generated by COVID-19 vaccines over time. And what it shows is that after the second dose, which get of each of either the Pfizer vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine, and it's the second dose that gives you the full protection, antibody levels actually decline quite a lot um, up to about day 70 after the the second protective dose. And we're just highlighting that this has now been published and it's something that we need to take note of um, in terms of how long vaccine efficacy might might last And it looks like, from what you say, that it does matter which vaccine you receive. It does indeed. I think the first thing to say is that it doesn't really matter which of the approved vaccines you get. They are all very effective and likely to remain fairly effective or very effective for some time to come. But we do know that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines uh, give you about 95% protection. The AstraZeneca vaccine, which has been predominantly used in the UK, gives you about 62% protection after the second dose. Um, However, what this paper points out is that the protective antibody levels are much higher with the the Pfizer vaccine than the Astra vaccine, and therefore when you get significant declines in protective antibodies, you're likely to get, by the looks of it, better protection longer term if you've got the Pfizer vaccine relative to the AstraZeneca vaccine. And obviously, if you get less protection with the Astra vaccine to begin with, uh, the question then becomes at what level or at what point or could this happen? that you reach a level where those antibodies no longer protect you as well against COVID-19 and especially new variants of COVID-19 like the Delta variant.
1: Yes, you mentioned the Delta variant and indeed these conclusions have some significant implications, particularly as the UK has moved to
0: lift most COVID-19 restrictions. Potentially will do. I mean if if you look at what causes COVID-19 to be transmitted, it's it's closer contact, the lifting of restrictions will mean there is more contact between people uh, in a broad range of settings. Um, Some of those settings won't cause increased transmissions, for example, if you go to the beach or you're in outside settings, but in in crowded indoor settings, lifting of restrictions raises the risk that you do get more transmission. The more transmission you get and the, the greater exposure to the virus, even if you've been vaccinated, means that you can either pass it on to unvaccinated or clinically vulnerable people, Or there's there's also the risk that even despite vaccination, you could become infected with something like the Delta variant that could still cause illness. And it's always a lag effect. Uh, So how long uh, before
1: we know the impact on hospitalisation and and mortality?
0: It's a really difficult one to call um, for the time being. What we saw in the winter, the third peak in winter, there was about a three week lag between the peak of the number of infections and the peak of hospitalizations and deaths. Hopefully, and the, the initial data looks as if this is encouraging, with, vaccine, with vaccines having been deployed in a large part of the population in the UK, that um, gap will become wider. And what's more, the number of inf- hospitalizations and deaths will be significantly lower than we saw during the pre-vaccination period. But we'll need to monitor this on a day-to-day basis over the coming months. Um, as the data rolls in every single day.
1: Steve, thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you. That brings us to the end of
1: today's
2: Macro Viewpoint. Thank you to our guests, Fabio Balboni, Aaron Shin, and Steve McGarry. From Piers and me, thanks very much for listening. We'll be back again next week.
0: Thank you for listening today. This has been HSBC Global Viewpoint, Banking and Markets. For more information about anything you heard in this podcast or to learn about HSBC's global services and offerings, please visit gbm.hsbc.com.